0: HHW presents Who Reads the Watchmen? Issue number 11, part 1 by the Legion of Dudes
1: Watchmen, one of us
2: died tonight somebody knows why
1: Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time The Legion of Dudes Don't go away man Come on, this affects all of us, man. We're basic freedoms. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe.
3: It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. And now, here's the dudes.
4: Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. It's one minute to midnight, and welcome to Half Hour Wasted Presents Who Reads the Watchmen by the Legion of Dudes. The Armageddon is near. It's issue number 11. And I'm Ken Morgan, Logan McLeod on the Comic Forums, and I'm joined by my fellow cohorts and conspirators. Introduce yourself, guys.
1: This is Jim Deeds.
3: This is Russell. Hey, this is Adam.
4: Okay, thanks, guys, and don't forget you can... uh, Check out all of our past episodes or leave uh, your feedback on our episodes at the Comic Forums. Look for Half Hour Wasted and uh, join on in on the discussion there. We also have a special guest with us today. Adam, why don't you tell us who we have?
3: Well, um, we have Raf Suhu, a.k.a. Wraithmaker from the Comic Forums. Raf, welcome, man. It's good to hear from you.
0: It's good to hear from you guys. Uh, thanks yeah. for having me on.
3: Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, I want to talk about a couple things real quick. For those of you guys who are not in the know, Raf works at Manhattan's Finest Midtown Comics, drop-dead center of the world on Manhattan Island. And um, can you talk to us a little bit, Raph, about how Watchmen's been selling um, on the retail end of things? We know DC's pre-ordered and has, you know, had a pretty large printing request for about 900,000 copies. With the Christmas and the holiday season ended now, um, did you guys see a big rush on Watchmen books?
0: Okay, uh, before I begin, I'm going to say that uh, and nothing I say constitutes a legal binding agreement with Midtown Comics. Midtown Comics does not approve anything I say or do ever. Well, we uh, don't
3: either, but you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but to start off, um, I'm going to go all the way back to around the time Dark Knight came out and when the trailer first premiered. That weekend, we had maybe tw- We keep about, generally before this whole craze, we keep about 20, 25 copies of Watchmen in stock by Saturday morning. All 25 uh, copies were gone, and so what happened was we started ramping up our our stock. I, I we we keep them at a warehouse, and so we keep at least uh, 10 to 15 of the hardcover, you know, four or five of the absolute, a dozen or so of the watching the Watchmen, and at least you know 40 40 to 50 of the Watchmen softcover. Ever since that that came out, the trailer. We have a we have an inventory. We make every night we check to make sure how many Watchmen's we have of each edition. We make sure we have enough, and then when if we don't, we reorder, we reorder, we reorder. Every time the truck comes in, we have a whole bunch of Watchmen's on there, always ready to go out. I mean, it was insane. You cannot. It got to the point where you could not go in. once you walked in the front of the store, you saw at least five people holding a yellow cover of you know for Watchmen, and it it was absolutely nuts. I'm telling you, we, we had them featured everywhere. Every time we move books for new releases, we feature Watchmen where the new release trades were. It, it, it's it's madness. It
3: really is. I, I well, Let me yeah. ask you this. It sounds like it's pretty much selling itself with word of yeah. mouth, but what are you guys doing to promote the book? Let me ask you that. Um, when people
0: – I just point at it. Really, it's <laughs> like – it's. where's what there? Uh, do uh, you recommend Watchmen? There, it's it really it does sell itself. Um, most people come in, come in and and know that they're asking for it, and um, they know that they want it. So I don't really have to push it on anyone. Uh, you know, or or you know, sell anyone.
3: What's your experience with Watchmen been? And number two, under what conditions would you recommend this book to someone?
0: I actually didn't read this until I was about uh 22. 20, 21, 22, that was like two or three years ago. And I was very resistant towards reading it. The reason was uh, when I was a little younger and people would talk to me about comics, they'd be like, "If you know, you should really read Watchmen. I'm like, okay, I'll get to it. No, you really need to read it. You're not a comic book fan unless you read Watchmen. And I really took offense to that because, you know, I, I at that point I was buying 60, 80 books a month. I mean, who are you to tell me I'm not a comic book fan? So it really upset me and I, I kind of thought that it was it had an overblown reputation and I didn't like it, so I didn't. The first time I read it, I I didn't I didn't really read it the whole the whole way through because I didn't I I was I was already against it. But the second time I really read it, it's it's still one of my favorites to this day. Uh, you know, some of the some of the issues are a little dated. The artwork's different now. The artwork style is different compared to back in '86. But I absolutely love Watchmen. Watchmen is one of my top ten stories of all time, just bar none. I mean, just, you know, books, comics, whatever you want to call it, it's my it's one of my top ten stories. I just I love. It's really dense. It's there's a lot going on in there, and uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say after that.
3: Let's talk about uh, comics in general, since you're not only a, a retailer and purveyor of comics, but um, you are debuting your own comic at the Comic Geek Speak Super Show in September of 2009. I believe that has something to do with a character named Michael Tang. Can you talk to us about your comic so far, and maybe where you're at in the process?
0: Jeez, um, it's it's called Wraith: The Legend of Michael Tang. Every one of us as a kid always had a, a character who was an avatar for us. It's basically our own character who had superpowers who hung out with all the superheroes, you know, you know, he was he was my guy in the Justice League, you know, and who who fought crime and Superman and everything. What I did it, co- it goes back to when I was 19, I decided to write my own comics and I did. And now that I've, you know, I've been through college and I've come into my own comics-wise and I've got a a much better understanding of how how things work. I decided to put out a comic book because, you know, really, I have no choice. There's, there are other things I could do, but really, I'm driven to write a comic book story. I can't give away too much plot, but I will tell you this. It's the story of a man who has lived an amazing life and done amazing things, but only knows the tip of the iceberg of what really is going on behind his adventures, behind what he's done, and really, it, it explores the mythology of the world all the various myths that we have and legends and really tries yes. to bring some reality to it and you know really put it into us into a frame where it's possible where you know guys like hercules did exist on our planet at one point the the guys from *Crouching tiger hidden dragon that fly around and hop on trees that was humanly possible at one point and uh, and trying to uncover why it's not like that anymore why we can't do those things and what happened
3: no, I mean, obviously, you know, with your background and with, well, Michael's last name, what kind of Asian influence is on this book? Is it with the mythology specifically, or what else can you tell us?
0: Essentially, it started off with, like I, like I was saying, you know, the in, in Kung Fu movies you have all these people that, that can fly in the air and shoot these, like, energy blasts and can do all these great things. I figure we already know, I mean, we can... In Marvel you already have Hercules and Thor in D C of have Wonder Woman and, and to some extent Hercules. People are exploring the Western myths. What about the Eastern myths? What about things like that? Things where people can fly in the air or or some of the legendary the legends of like Chinese or Japanese history. You know, why why not bring that to the forefront, make them sort of part of the feature of the comic? For me, I mean Michael Michael really is he's sort of the most he he, he is a uh, part Bruce Lee, part Indiana Jones. He is supposed to be like everything that that, that the really cool Asian Asian protagonist is like. He, he 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 doesn't play off all the stereotypes. He's not indestructible. But as we explore it, you know, we we get to see more of the stuff that you see in Asian cinema and Asian history, like brought forward as opposed to you know just another Hercules and another Thor coming to the forefront. I mean, I'll I'll bring those in eventually, but. I want to focus on something that most of Western civilization doesn't pay attention to.
3: And I think that's a a pretty good thing, I guess, to kind of bring things together here. um, I know that on your podcast, which is called Geeks Unite, you and Juan have um, recently changed the name to the Geeks Unite Network, uh, which is also available on iTunes. Can you talk to us about the reason for the name change and what you're planning to do with the podcast?
0: The original idea of Geeks Unite was to have people come together on the show and talk about what they like the most about what they love, you know, just to talk about what they're geeks about. It didn't work only because I didn't realize and I probably should have going forward that really when you listen to a most people, I mean, how many of us listen to a podcast and how many of us actually do podcasts? There's more listeners than there are podcasters. So it it kind of dawned on me, you know, I can't keep going on with that premise because I'm just I'm not fulfilling the premise and I'm only getting upset at myself, whereas, you know, everyone, you know, it's it's more about me needing to change it for myself because I was not happy with it. So now that the network is basically me and Juan and whoever wants to do do a show, just do a show, and it's all under the banner of Geeks Unite Network. So, for example, I'm about to record the uh, comic book talk show. It's it's the Geeks Unite Network episode 47. The next one, whatever it is, whoever's on it, it will be forty-eight, forty-nine, fifty. It's just another way of me putting myself out there with that. Another with open that forum, one. too. Yeah, it's more open, and but it also doesn't rely on the premise. I need to have someone on to talk about what they love. I can do what I want, and other people can do do it too. If not, that's fine.
3: Cool. Well, um, we will look for Geek Tonight on iTunes and also on your website. Um, I guess uh, you know we're glad to have you on today. So just please feel free to jump in. We have an open forum here too. But uh, moving on to some housekeeping things, Raf, um, we've got Russ to talk about, uh, one of our contest winners, and some forum comments. I've got a few things to talk about with iTunes specifically, and then Russ and Jim are going to talk to us um, with our discussion topics for Issue 11. Take it away, Russ. All right, well, as you might recall, last uh, issue we
2: we posted out a contest for the uh, Mercury and the Merd collected Edition and uh, soundtrack. And what we were looking for was just folks that were listening to the show to... To just write into Mr. Adam Reed, who was uh, missing from last week, and um, through some family stuff, is missing from this week too. So we picked on him as a recipient of having to go through the entries and make the decision. So he picked um, an entry from Caliban on the forum, Eamon Clark, and he pointed out a couple things um, to us. Um, some of it I think we we, we kind of brushed on, but he went into a little more detail. I'll kind of uh, paraphrase the the email he sent in because he does talk about something, a couple things from issue twelve that. That I think we'll get to you a little later on. But he talked about, um, he said, I don't think you mentioned this in your shows yet, but I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Beats' first perfume is called Nostalgia, which is replaced at the end of the book by a new brand, Millennium. In Watchman Moore's Looking Back at the Golden Age of Comics and Superheroes, there is his obvious delight in the simpler times and activities of the first Night Owl and Silk Spectre, when a good right hook would be enough to solve many crimes he also sees the darker and more ridiculous side of comics. The slogan used for nostalgia scent is, Oh, how the ghost of you clings, which is from the song, These Foolish Things. Moore fondly remembers the great comics of his youth, but knows how silly many of them now appear. Um, Then he kind of wraps it up with, um, of course, Moore is on record as being unhappy that the main comic's response to Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns was the introduction of Grim and Gritty, friendly neighborhood psychopaths everywhere. Ironically, his more recent works, such as 1963... Top ten in the league of extraordinary gentlemen have seen him turning back to the nostalgia of the gold, golden and silver ages that he helped end in Watchmen. Keep up the good work, guys. Looking forward to the last issues. So we appreciate um, all of those folks that that uh, sent us an entry in, and Mr. Adam Clark for for being
3: the winner. We've heard a couple from a couple people from issue ten on the forums too. What do we? What have we got?
2: Yeah, we got we got a couple uh, comments that that I'd like to point out. One of them from Mr. Calvin himself again. He said another good looking guy. I'm I'm pretty sure that Adrian's assistants are mentioned in the text piece from number 11 as being Vietnamese refugees who gave political shelter to. They look different in the larger format of the absolute and don't look like clones. Um, The next comment is from Kilgore. Great going, guys. I've I've been reading Watchmen since the early 90s and somehow have an American copy that I managed to get signed by Dave Gibbons and John Higgins back at a Comic-Con in London back in 92. I was wondering if you'd be covering the taking out the trash module for DC Heroes RPG, which has a lot of extra background. Keep up the good work. Which, that happens to be our discussion piece for, for this week, is we're going to talk about gaming. Jim's going to talk about the actual video game side of things. I was able to dig up a bunch of stuff on the RPG, um, stuff that Kilgore mentioned. And the last comment we got was from the Crippled Avenger, who said, who asked, will the dudes be addressing the film's future in the next issue? Um, definitely will. Um, we're hoping that we would have a little more information, but I think in the next couple of weeks, I think um, we'll be we'll be getting some stuff. So we may be um, hot off the presses with uh, the next next issue's movie talk.
3: So thanks. Um, thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to everybody on that, and um, just a quick a little, quick some uh, late breaking dude news. Um, we have been featured on one of the iTunes made on, the, on on the. We're gonna have to edit this, John. And I guess with some. Late-breaking dude news, uh, we have been featured on the iTunes uh, main page for TV and movies. Um, It's called the Watchmen Movie and Book Podcast, and we released our first four episodes under a different feed to kind of get some more listeners and to kind of uh, uh, tap into the Watchmen hype. So we want to say thanks to all the forum members that uh, posted up a great uh, review of issues one through four so far. Our plan is this. Um, we're going to continue on our own schedule on, on under the half hour wasted feed for Watchmen and our our, our regular episodes, and we're going to keep putting up um, maybe what what would you say, Russ, a couple of months or so for Watchmen episodes on the separate Watchmen feed. Yeah, yeah, we you know we'll
2: kind of be staggering out the release, typically one a week, maybe one every ten days, um, until we hit all twelve, which will which will actually be thirteen episodes because we're mm-hmm. I think we're planning on twelve to be two parts. So yeah, yeah we've we one. Yeah, we got, we got at least, you know, eight or nine more weeks of, uh, of episodes on that separate feed. But like I said, it's just a way to kind of help us, um, reach a wider audience, promote the, promote the podcast, get some more listeners to the main show that, you know, might be really interested in Watchmen and might be able to like what we're doing with, uh, our one shots and our kind of off, offhand episodes as well as bringing attention to Half Hour Wasted as well.
3: Absolutely, and I guess with that, uh, just again, thanks to everybody who's done that. So, Raf, feel free to jump in. Russ and Jim, you guys have our discussion topic, which is gaming, and more specifically, Watchmen and gaming. So, let's get this started off, guys. Sounds good. Well, I'll I'll talk a little bit about the uh, the RPG um, side of it. That um,
2: back in the '80s, as a part of the whole RPG craze, you know, Marvel had their their own RPG, DC had their own RPG, and with Watchmen getting Pretty successful and being a big hit, uh, DC decided um, that you know, Mayfair Games had the license, so they decided to release some Watchmen-specific stuff into the um, into that universe, so people can kind of role-play out the Watchmen. So there are two things that um, there are two adventure modules that they created. One of them was called Taking Out the Trash, and the other one was uh, Who Watches the Watchmen. So they're both released in 80, 1987. Uh, Taking out the trash was uh, 40 pages, um, and Who Watches the Watchmen was 32. Who Watches the Watchmen was actually a pre keen act adventure that they released out, um, so that was that was kind of neat. And uh, the the actual um, the other thing they released a few years later in 1990 was a 128-page source book, a Watchmen source book. Um, this was not written by Moore, but the interesting thing about the Taking Out the Trash uh, add-on module was there were sections that were co-written by Alan Moore, um, giving a capsulated history of the characters in the world, including information that was not given in the series. Um, so there, there are quite a few things that they, you know, that they delved into in, in much more detail in, in, the, uh, in the kind of the, the RPG adventures than they did in the actual book itself.
4: In, in what you've been reading your research, was there any examples of what, what was included in the, in the module that was not in the book? Did they give you any examples of that?
2: yeah i've got i've got a, a few of them here one of them and, and these are things that i think we kind of was kind of hinted at um but what they it, it one of the things that cleared up was that the comedian definitely murdered hooded justice and was and he used his government connection connections to kind of cover his tracks um and to be able to get and to get away with it um and it it's pretty much outlined in there that he also killed Woodward and Bernstein and was involved in the kennedy assassination so all of these things that we kind of hinted at from, from the book are pretty much uh, justified in there. there. There's also some more stuff on hooded justice. Rolf um, Mueller was indeed the name he used, but it was, it was, it was just an alias. Apparently, there, you know, the, his true identity was never really um, found out. He wasn't a communist. He was an anti-communist and had uh, uh, connections to the KKK, and he was the last person to agree to join the Minutemen. Um, and he also publicly spoke in favor of Hitler, in an interview in 1940. But yeah, there are quite, quite a few things. Um, one of the other things that it, that it mentioned, or that it talked about too, was that Sally Jupiter was a teenage runaway. The original the original Silk Spectre was a teenage runaway. The other thing, um, they talked about the silhouette a little bit, her true identity. She was an Austrian aristocrat who fled the Nazis um, and, and left Europe. It, I guess there were, it, it talked about there being a lot of tension between her and Hooded Justice because of Hooded Justice's um, pro-Hitler stance. But 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 Larry Shaxeter, I guess that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, Sally's uh, husband kind of was able to kind of keep a lot of that under the swept under the rug because of it, or you know because of his his you know prominence in
3: the group and kind of the PR man. I know Russ that um, looking at Dave Gibbons watching the watchman book that came out. Um, there's a section on uh, memorabilia, and not only with the smiley face pins that um, DC started handing out without. Uh, giving the guys uh compensation for. They also released some pewter figures Were those um like pewter figures were those almost like um like uh tin soldier kind of mini- miniatures. Were those used with the RPG or were those something different?
2: I don't know. I know, you know, a lot of times in the RPG world, um even in the, you know, D&D, Marvel whatever, they released a lot of those those type of figurines that people painted and used them almost like avatars. So you know, you didn't really use them to play. I mean, whether they were specifically released for that purpose, I'm not sure. Or or, you know, I'm not sure or not. But I know that you know, a lot of folks you know use those little little you know, like you said, tin soldiers. And some of them got pretty elaborate with painting them and and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And then when they play, you just kind of place your you know whatever
3: character or characters were either involved or you're playing. You kind of you know slap them up on the table. I know Um, when I used to do the uh, Star Wars miniatures. Um, the, the minis game, like those were great for doing Star Wars RPG too. Hey Raph, does Midtown carry any gaming stuff?
0: Uh, not really. We have a little bit of Marvel RPG stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, there used to be another store in, in uh, New York City, uh, for, uh, not Forbidden Planet, uh, Neutral Ground, but they shut down last week. There <laughs> There is another gaming store somewhere around Forbidden Planet, but I forget exactly where it is. I, I just want to bring up that um, you brought up the pins that, that they released around the time of uh, Watchmen's release. Right. I uh, this guy came in the store today. He was wearing one, and I asked and I asked him about it if he got it back then. And he and he said he did. And I said uh, I hope they make it again for the new movie. And he said that they might not do it because of the uh, the guy who owns the original copyright for the smiley face. Mm-hmm. He may want some royalties. So I think that I don't. He made it sound like that. It. He had heard that it's pretty unlikely that they're gonna remake the pins. I don't know if you guys had heard anything about that.
3: Yeah, it's it's kind of weird that um, I, I remember reading an interview with Zack Snyder that there's even a good possibility that this while the smiley face we see all through the book and everything just because of copyright and I I never thought that a smiley face would or could or is copyrighted but that its appearance in the film is might actually be limited um, specifically because of that if not just for you know the marketing stuff too. Have any of you guys ever done any RPGs? I know Russ has been talking about them. Jim, Ken? Way back in the day, yeah. Which ones? Uh, Dungeons and & Dragons, and I even toyed with the, uh, there was an Indiana Jones uh, set for a
4: little while, and I toyed around with that.
1: Uh, back before I discovered Girls, I played Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, the old school edition with the hardback books. Now I just play RPGs on Xbox.
3: And I guess over where you're at in Pittsburgh, uh, the, probably the best RPG store is Phantom of the Attic.
1: By, That's uh, true. They have a whole store devoted to nothing but games now. In, That's in an amazing,
3: amazing, amazing store. Phantom of the Attic It wasn't my LCS when I used to live out in Pittsburgh, but I would always go about you know once a month get some Hero clicks or something like that. And, uh, they got great displays there too. And uh, right by, um, right in there in Oakland, right?
1: That's right. In fact, they moved to a new spot right across the street from where they used to be, much bigger, much uh, much more spacious. South Very Craig nervous. Street, South Craig Street right. in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. That's correct. I do know that um, back in the day, that DC did make uh, lead miniatures for their uh, DC Heroes games. So there was probably a Watchmen set among those. Mm-hmm. I would yeah. imagine the um, the video on the, the video game side of things. Um, the the Watchmen, the End is Nigh uh, is the name of the video game. It's going to be released as da- episodic downloads, uh, one a month, starting in March on the PlayStation Network, on Xbox Live, and uh, for PCs over the Steam Network uh, run by Valve. Each uh, episode is going to be uh, between 8 to 10 hours of gameplay, and it's going to take place pre-Keen Act. The first episode comes out in 1972, and it looks like the same prison that uh, Night Owl later breaks uh, Rorschach out of, at least in the screenshots that are here in the uh, the article that I'm looking at. Yeah. Um, it's funny though because Dave Gibbons references the RPG in his interview saying that a long, long time ago he and Alan collaborated for Mayfair on the modules and that this video game is going to be covering a lot of the uh, same ground. Uh, so that might be a clue as to what's going to be happening in the future episodes. Maybe they're going to be using some of the stuff in the modules as a source material. Um, they, you can play in the game either as Rorschach or Night Owl. Uh, if you play as Rorschach... In addition to a strength meter, you also have a rage meter, which allows you to use more things in the environment to your advantage. Uh, For instance, like uh, ripping a pipe off a wall to take some guy out, or a fire extinguisher. Uh, Rorschach is very much, uh, uh, his character in the game, is very much uh, more attuned to environmental weapons, whereas Night Owl has more gadgets, and he will have a power meter instead of a rage meter, uh, depending on how much power is left in his Night Owl suit and uh, uh, they're going to be uh, touching on stuff that was only mentioned in the book. Uh, Len Wein, who was the editor of the original Watchmen graphic novel, is going to be writing uh, the prequel stories for the video game. Uh, We're going to be seeing the underboss, uh, who was only referenced and made reference of in the book, uh, Jimmy the Gimmick, and other characters. It looks pretty interesting. It's from a uh, Scandinavian uh, development house called Deadline, who have done action games before in the past. Uh, I think their last game was uh, called Chili Con Carnage. It was kind of an open world GTA-style game. Uh, so, I mean, it, lo- it the, the awesome screenshots look great, but uh, who knows? It could, it could be great, could be terrible. On the uh, One Up FM podcast this week, they speculated that after they released them month by month, they might uh, release all six episodes on a disc.
4: That's certainly possible. Um- Mm-hmm. Be curious to see what would you know if I would be willing to wait for that because the games will always be available on on live or P- PlayStation Three. Um, it's rare that they pull the game back, uh, so either you could wait for that disc or just play them. But I can't see myself wanting to buy it twice unless they really give us a reason to buy the disc on top
2: of buying the the download versions.
3: Trailer looked pretty good. We'll put the trailer link up. Yeah, and then for
2: those for those that live out in in areas of questionable or slow internet activity, the the disc the disc version may be their only only route.
4: So. <laughs> True enough.
2: Who are you
1: talking about, Russ?
2: I don't know. You know those those people with you know that live out you know twenty miles from nowhere.
1: The uh, the big article in Electronic Gaming Monthly that I'm referring to though has interviews with Gibbons and Snyder and Len Wein uh, all about the Watchmen game, and they all say that they're uh, taking an active role in its development. Uh, Zack Snyder in particular said he felt burned by the game that they made for three hundred. Uh, based on three, his film 300 for the PSP. So he wants to make sure that uh, if there is going to be a video game made of his film, that he has something to do with it and some participation. Uh, Gibbons has said he's been participating all along, seeing, seeing the game as it's been develop, in development, telling people you know, what looks right and what doesn't look right. So, I mean, it has the potential to be a, a lot of fun. As blasphemous as it seems to to make a video game based on Watchmen, it could turn out to be a pretty fun game.
3: Yeah, I think so. Plus, look at Len Wayne getting back into things. I mean, he just wrote the Libra backstory for Final Crisis Secret Files, and see him, you know, get involved with this again is pretty neat too. Hey, Russ, do you have anything else for the RPG stuff? No, that's pretty much it. You know, there's
2: not unfortunately there's not a whole lot of stuff out there. I mean, I will say that if you're trying to pick this stuff up, you know, just for nostalgia or if you know you're still doing gaming, it's pretty expensive. I mean, to find, you know, it's funny. It's one of those things like we've been talking. You know, six months, you well, know, maybe not six months ago, a year ago. A um, year and a half ago you could have got this stuff for probably pennies you know for pennies on the dollar and now you know they're selling you know mint sealed you know modules for fifty, seventy five bucks in the source book for even more than that. So, you know, this stuff is crazy insane. You know, my recommendation would be if you're really into it and really want it to just you know let the
3: hype die down and, and you know see if you can get it somewhere down the road. Awesome. Hey it sounds like we can start the issue. Let's get going. Yeah. So issue eleven. One minute to midnight.
2: We're almost there. I can't believe we're, uh, we've come so far already.
3: Um, and said so little.
2: <laughs> yeah. So look, again, looking at the cover, you know, we get, this one's, you know, interesting because it's pretty, it, it's all, you know, white. I mean, there's just a lot of white on this cover, um, which isn't something that we've seen so far. I mean, usually the cover has, you know, quite a bit of color to it and a lot of flair. Um, even the, the, ch- the chapter number, which usually is, is yellow, and this one is even is even white. So again, they're they're going with the whole you know snow motif um, to what's going on here. So we see a close up of uh, the side of the dome of Adrian's dome in the Antarctic, and it's interesting because the the blow up of it is th- the spot that's cleared on the dome is actually in the shape of the blood splatter um, that we see on the Smiley all the time. It's 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 got that same shape, and then we got the you know the, the two drops coming down from it. And in, in this time, the, the, the other difference is this is a, a blow-up of the panel two, not necessarily panel one that we see. And then, it, you know, we, we get further and further out, and we, get, we see the, uh, Adrian's entire complex at the bottom of page one, partially getting covered over by snow, you know, by the intense um, blizzard and snow. See a couple smokestacks sticking out of the bottom, which I'm, I'm sure is exhaust from heating and power and, you know, everything else going on in this massive, massive complex that he's been able to build. And of course, we get the title for issue eleven, which is "Look on my works, ye mighty." Which, as always, at
3: the end, we'll get to uh, we'll get to the the, the full quote um, on the issue. I think uh, you know we we spoke about this in issue ten. The nature of Adrian's, I guess, Egyptian motif, you know, really suggests the desert. And I think it's ironic that we see in you know the Antarctic here. It, it's like the desert is the oasis. You know what I mean? Like that. It's not like an oasis in the desert, but the desert itself is an oasis amidst, you know, like, what was that one Robert Frost poem? Desert places um, that everything's, you know, centered around that which is nothing itself.
1: What I love the best about Karnak uh, and, you know, Adrian's uh, hideout here in uh, Antarctica is that Morgan Gibbons takes so many conventions in this comic and turn them on their ears. And here we see one of the, you know, the most you know um uh hack new conventions in in comics the uh the you know the super villain lair in the middle of nowhere you know usually it's on the side of a volcano or you know deep underwater this time it's on you know in in, in you know another improbable place in antarctica and it's just another way of them taking another convention and turning it on its head
2: yeah well and we'll we'll see even more of that of that convention being flipped upside down as as we get to the end which which will be very very interesting so then moving moving on to to page two, we get this. The, the, all of this that's being spoken. I mean, we're basically going to get almost you know three or four pages of. I mean, it, it'll it'll interlude in to, um, to Rorschach and and Dan heading towards the towards Karnak, but we get this almost like stream of consciousness, um, random you know speaking that that Adrian's doing, and it's it's funny because he even you know mentions Bur- it's like he mentions Burroughs, and then talks about how he, you know, puts you know these things out and juxtaposes them and swirls them around to get a, a story. And it's almost like, based on what he's saying, that possibly that's what Moore did to give us this, you know, this dialogue on, on these on these pages here.
1: Yeah, Burroughs was a big uh, proponent of the cut up method of writing, where he'd go ahead and write a story and then cut it into indescribable phrases or indistinguishable phrases and uh, pieces, sometimes single words. And then just mix the whole thing up and reread it. So, I mean, we keep talking about how Alan Moore is obviously uh, influenced by the Beats. Here's another example.
3: You know, and in fairness, too, as far as William S. Burroughs goes, I mean, I've never heard of of anyone else who could write a 20-page description about what the bottom of their shoe looks like. Uh, Try to get through that. That's That's some heavy writing there, man. Yeah. But then we see, again, you know,
2: Adrian talks about them being 10 miles away, and yet here he is. Um, or at least ten miles away, and and here he is, you know, sitting back, um, watching them on the t- on the t- you know all his television screens. So the, the surveillance this guy has set up is just kind of insane. You know, as we saw that kind of previously when they crash landed, you know, he was able to see them as well. So you know, for, for it's it, you know the guy's got how many monitors there and has all these different angles and views. It's just kind of crazy.
3: So and of course- I'm looking on. Panel 4 at page 2. And it says uh, that the New York time right now, it looks about, what, like 11.15? And, you know, no, sp- I mean, obviously, you know, the issue ends with the nuclear explosion in New York, which happens at midnight. So Adrian's famous line is, what, that he already did it 35 minutes ago? So 10 minutes from Panel 4 is when Adrian launches his plan. So at this point, when Dan and Rorschach are coming to save the day, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that they made it, like, in time, but not soon enough. Like, they're basically 10 minutes off from saving the world, if you want to look yeah. at it that right, way, yeah. from when Adrian's seeing them. Well, also, or-
0: they're covering a lot of ground. I mean, 10 miles in about uh, 10 minutes there on those uh, little scooter things that Night Owls
2: provided for them. Right. 60 miles an hour. The train leaving Chicago is traveling eastbound at 20 miles an hour. <laughs> the answer it seven. It, it's funny that, you know, and then at the bottom of page two, you know, Adrian says, it says, really getting even this far is a breathtaking effort given their limitations it must be so disorienting their pursuit leads them deeper into moral and intellectual regions as uncharted and devoid of landmark as the territories currently surrounding them so you know here they are in the middle of you know literally in the middle of nowhere in the frozen wastes and you know adrian is saying that you know look at what they had to do to get here you know they've had to break the law you know i mean look look at what rorschach had to do to get to get to this point i mean you know, all the people he, you know, beat up and, you know, the the what he went through in the prison and then Dan and Lori, you know, br- basically breaking them out of jail um, and then running from the cops at the end. So, you know, again, he's, you know, they're going through adversity just to get in the general vicinity and then all the adversity they're having to go through just to get from where they
3: landed to get to their final destination. Plus, you know, that whole idea of limitations, I mean, that's very, very much heavy on pride, I mean the limitations that Dan and Rorschach have. Oh, well, let's see, let's think. I mean, you've organized a worldwide coup against you know the planet, and then you're going to say that they have limitations. Well, you know, it's not like you told them what the plan was. There, you know, genius. But <laughs> that's a pretty good effort, I'd say, cutting it, missing it by ten minutes. Yeah, and then moving on, moving on to page three. they you know, it's funny they talk about,
2: you know, they're being concerned about, you know, a direct approach and creep, you know, sneaking around and. And all this kind of stuff, and you know, the, you know, little do they know that they've been watched, watched basically since since they since they landed.
0: Yeah, my favorite panel is actually the uh, the fourth one, where uh, where they're discussing what Adrian's motive, and Warshak is just uh, just chewing on his candy, and he goes insanity, perhaps. Meanwhile, he's lifted up his uh, mask in the middle of the Antarctic, which is freezing cold, just to have a little bit of candy, and he's calling Adrian insane.
3: Yeah, those are the sugar cubes yeah. from Dan's apartment.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just, he's, I mean, it's just funny, the, the little idiosyncrasies that they have, and even even in, in the face of, you know, this great danger, he's, he's going to, you know, chomp on a sugar cube and just then call Adrian insane, whereas, you know, he's totally nuts for doing that. I would, I mean, you know, I that, that also got me that Rorschach was comfortably warm in, in his uh, trench coat there. And his mask, I I never never quite was comfortable with that. I thought maybe he'd be dead by then.
3: You would think, Um, I mean... He's numb to a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because we'll see, you know,
2: when they finally reach their destination a couple of pages from now, that Dan is so cold to the point where he can't even speak, and Rorschach is totally fine. And basically he's got a pair of pants, a trench coat, a scarf, a hat, and a mask, you know, and a pair of gloves. But it's a warm scarf. It's a warm... (laughs) But, you know, it doesn't seem to be bothered by the cold. You know, it, it's just kind of, kind of bizarre. Then of course we get the, uh, the Heart of Darkness reference to, uh, um that Rorschach gives in the second panel, you know, which d- definitely we get the parallel to the literature where, you know, here you are, two guys going after their end, re- you know, their, what the end game for them is and, you know, the journey that they've taken to get there, you know, and again, it, you know, this part of the, the issue is more about the, you know, their journey there than, you know, than, than, you know, what they're there for, so. Kind of, kind of interesting that he brought that
4: up. Yeah, and I really love Dan's observation about him here. When, uh, when Rorschach suggests that he's insane, he's like, "Well, that's a tricky one, isn't it? We have who's qualified to judge that? We have the smartest man in the world. How can anyone tell if he's crazy?"
0: People see uh, genius as insanity. I mean, it's it's happened or create you know creative creative genius in, at times as insanity. I mean, there's tons of artists where uh, who in the past who have been seen as crazy—Van Gogh, Picasso. You know, the, I mean, Yes. And even you know the Wachowskis, you know they're 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 uh, they're cinematic geniuses. That's the word I was looking for, cinematic geniuses. But there's rumors of one of them, you know, changing genders, and we call them crazy. But they're really into their philosophy. So the the idea of insanity is being—it's sort of what is what is being what is insane. It it they're sort of questioning that at that time too, which is really interesting
1: well that's the uh central theme of uh, heart of darkness too it's kind of cool they reference heart of darkness yet everything is so white and bright and clean it's like a visual irony again you know instead of i mean we're going into the darkest part of uh adrian but it's also the whitest and brightest also how do they think they could sneak up on him if he's like in the middle of nowhere in antarctica i mean where is there to sneak you know what i mean yeah, and that shows well, their hub- hubris
0: too. It's like, oh, we, we're going to sneak up on, we're going to save the day, as if they could. Right,
1: exactly.
2: And of course, at the bottom, we get the bike cam that's popped out of the out of the snow. There, this issue to me just has a lot of. I don't know if you guys felt it too when you're reading it, but more so than any of the others, a real James Bond kind of vibe to it. You know, the whole, you know, you know, gadgets, the the different coats, and you know, then the hover, you know, taking the hover bikes and the. You know, the, the the fortress in the middle of nowhere and then you know then you know the you know I can, I could just see, you know, again on film, these cameras just popping up out of nowhere, you know, all over the place spying on them.
1: Then there's also that convention of the you know, the villain uh laying out his entire plan for the hero. You know, that's another uh, thing that plays into your James Bond theory, but that's kind of what I was touching on before. Again, uh more is taking something that we've all seen in comic books, you know, the The um the the mad scientist in his evil lair and uh, made him you know giving him a friendly gentle corporate face, but it's still the same evil scientist out in his evil you know in his in his lair doing his nefarious work.
2: Try
4: the hot pockets.
1: Yeah right. Now I'm going to stand here and tell you all about my plan before I go implement it. You know, but in this case,
4: he's he's monologuing. (laughs)
2: So then we. we cut back on page 4 back to Adrian who's had enough he, he basically knows they're on their way they're they're coming there's really not much else you know at this point he realizes he can do except just you know wait for them and things are in motion so he's he's about to move and of course it, at the last panel on page 4 we see his his recording machine again where we get the radiation symbols um on the on the reel to reel
1: and, huge, and
4: then the huge the huge portrait of the uh, the gordian knot uh, yes being undone which is
2: kind of where we're at do you guys take it as, and 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 this will I think this will be a little more obvious later. But whenever they portray either typically Alexander, do you see that as Adrian commi- almost commissioned these paintings to have his face on them? Like the, the 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 character of Alexander, and we'll see it you know moving forward on page eight. But but the big portrait of him looks very very similar to to Adrian himself, almost like he had it painted of you know of him. You know, again. I wouldn't
1: be surprised. I mean, we saw in the last issue that the, the entire motif of his, his hideout is, are his initials, A-V, 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 everywhere. His, his ego is yeah. certainly
4: big enough to support that theory, yes.
0: Totally. And considering his prior obsession with uh, Alexander, which we'll find out later on, it, it does make sense that you know he would become the person he idolized yeah. through the paintings.
2: Then we move on, moving on to page five. We see him moving into another room. And it's funny that he's moving into this room, and whatever it is that's in there, and whatever is that's going on, is so bad that even Bubastis is afraid. As a you know, the natural animal instincts are for for Bubastis to to be away from it. And of course, we see at eleven twenty-five. You know, again, this will play out later. But you know, on the sixth panel, the red light comes on, and then in the seventh panel, we see the actual. I don't know if you guys can see it in your versions. Either the the the, the monthlies or in the trade. But in the absolute, it's a little easier to read. But on the seventh panel, it says "Do not enter when red light is on." So, of course, in the previous panel, the red light was on, and you know, again, Adrian's in there. You know, whatever's going on in that room is 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 nasty. You know, obviously, because for the you know the sign and everything else. And then, of course, like we mentioned
3: earlier, is staying outside of it. So even the animal knows that something hokey's going on here. Okay, so I'm looking at panel three on page five, and there's like a green circular object is that squidzilla i mean is that the squid
4: i'm gonna guess that of this because it's it's there okay. and then in, pa- in panel uh eight it's gone so, yeah, so it was- then
3: in was it last issue or the issue before when Max shea and everybody else on the boat got blown up the issue prior to that when we saw the island is that they had the squid under this huge tarp on a barge so we're to assume that they moved the squid from the barge on adrian's island to antarctica right that's how I'm running with it, yeah. So the squid was transported from, you know, the you know the island to over here then. Okay. Yeah, that's how I took it as well.
2: So, again, at this point, we don't know, you know, really what's going on. You know, again, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, looking back on it, everything becomes abundantly clear as to what's going on. But at this point, we just see Adrian walking into a room. There's an object. He pushes a button. A red light comes on. Red light goes off. Object is gone. Adrian leaves. Then... You know, about 10 pages from now we'll see exactly, or 15 pages
3: from now we'll see exactly, you know, what that specifically was all about. Where have we seen this scene before in the book? Dr. Manhattan's creation. Exactly. Something's, something gets, you know, cosmic bombarded or whatever with cosmic rays, and it becomes something that changes the world. And it's the exact parallel to uh, John Osterman's story, Dr. Manhattan's story, of something out of nothing, you know, changing the entire course of history. Absolutely.
1: It was probably think, yeah, Dr. Manhattan that gave him the idea that the teleportation would of, you know, Squidzilla would be possible.
2: Yeah, and he kind of alludes to that in, in, in this issue as well. That, As I mentioned later, you know, John was an inspiration for him in a lot of ways as far as, you know, he was able, you know, John was able to do these things, and, you know, Adrian just took it from the perspective of, well, why can't we reverse engineer them? You know, he's proven that they're physically possible, And that it's not, you know, it's not in the realm of impossibility. So that means there's got to be a scientific way to replicate it, you know, on an individual basis.
0: Well, not only that, but as well, I mean, we'll see it later on. Uh, I don't know if I should even bring it up, but he also has counter in in creating a teleportation process. He also counters uh, Dr. Manhattan's uh, sort of ability to see into the future also.
2: Right. So moving on to page six. We come across our first black freighter pages that, that that we've seen in this issue, and this will actually be the last issue that we see the black freighter in Black freighter does not appear in issue twelve and again we uh, we see a lot of parallels to what's being said in the black freighter and then what's being said on on panel in this in this uh instance like on panel one on page six we get you know kind of the the opposite of what's being said I mean here we have um, Bernie that's going on about you know about the the concert at Madison Square Garden and that he can hear the music all the way from, from where he's at and, you know, how loud it is and, you know, he obviously doesn't like it. He calls it music to drop bombs by is what it is. And then, of course, in the in the Black Freighter piece, we get Davidstown slept, deserted, safe for silence. So, you know, again, we get this juxtaposition of, you know, what's going on in one versus the other.
0: Oh, I do, I do want to drop off one anecdote uh, about uh, the area that it uh, Dave Gibbons in Watchmen and Watchmen uh, does, talks about uh, the area of uh, Madison Square Garden and the reference he used. And it turns out that the Gunga Diner is actually at the corner of 40th Street and 7th Avenue in New, in New York City which happens to be where Midtown Comics is. So literally the store I work at is ground zero for Beats plan. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I, I, I went, yeah. I, uh, the, the copy of Watchmen using, uh, I, I got signed by Gibbons. Uh, he came to the store to do a signing. And when we flipped the book, he he pointed that out, and we and we we're like, hey, we're at ground zero. This is all awesome. because they made a mistake. They thought that our our we were around the corner from Madison Square Garden. We're close, but we're about uh, six blocks away. So it's not exactly you know where they wanted it, but they used the reference
3: nonetheless. That is madness.
0: Yeah, that, <laughs> that's average. That, that, that's awesome. So when I when if if you, you know, I, hopefully I survived the squid attack if they ever do that. But uh, let us no, know, let us know so. at midnight. I will. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> hopefully, and uh, I'll be out of the area. I'll be. I'll be at home, cracking my skull open or something. I don't know.
2: Again, for the, this page, we get, you know, more of what's going on with the black freighter. You know, as far as the black freighter goes, the main character has finally made it home and gets into his house and thinks that you know the the the, the crew of the, of the freighter has made it all the way to his house and you know walks in and and you know, sees, you know, everybody thinks everybody's sleeping except for, you know, one, and, you know, basically goes about to beat that person to death and then, you know, realizes what he's done, and at that point, he, he runs away. So it's interesting, you know, again, his journey is, his whole purpose was to get home before the Black Freighter got there to warn, you know, to warn people that you know, what was coming, and then he ends up becoming that which... You know, he was trying to protect them from. You know, he ends up becoming the monster. You know, in in a sense, he you know he is the Black Freighter. He is the captain of the Black Freighter, murdering and and you know basically murdering his way all the way home, and just just performing
3: you know horrendous acts
2: and his you know mind completely twisted.
3: I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, he doesn't. You know, if <laughs> he's got you know quite a look in his eyes on panel four.
1: It goes back to the same Nietzsche theme that we've seen through the entire uh, miniseries about, you know, uh, if you fight monsters too long, you may become a monster. You know, if you stare into an abyss, the abyss stares back. I mean, we've seen it in so many of our characters here. And now with the, uh, the guy who was supposedly saving us from the Black Freighter. Yeah, and it's, it's funny on the, on the eighth panel, you know, we get, you know, Bernie's you know,
2: talking to, to Joey's you know, girlfriend that comes by and asks if he's seen her. And you know he says something you know that 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 sets her off, and he goes he goes huh he goes what did I say don't you know don't go away mad and mad is kind of emboldened, and then it, you know the Black Freighter text is there came an understanding so large it left no room for sanity as I fled past the mounted cadaver outside, lanterns flared in the nearby windows. So you know, he you know Bernie's saying don't go away mad, and then you know obviously the the character in the Black Freighter is running away crazy you know another you know mad being another another word for crazy
0: yeah there's also the juxtaposition of uh uh bernie not knowing what he did and are the uh the protagonist of the black Friday knowing too well what he all too well what he did
3: yeah plus with bernard on the last panel he says times like these people got to be hostile me and rosa should have quit this town like she wanted and escaped from everything and this is the mention of his wife uh whose name is rosa like rose which leads to you know an abundance of roses and flowers in the vivarium Latin for place of life with the with the root word uh, vive like uh you know to live so this vivarium that Adrian has uh he even says it's it's like an oasis uh, a tr- a tropical place amidst absolutely nothing. he says two alien universes separated by glass
0: yeah it's kind of interesting, I mean, I kind of got that he i mean just his hubris when he says that i mean he's comparing his accomplishment to bringing together two universes i mean it's an incredible accomplishment i mean he 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 brought life to where he brought a garden to where there's nothing just just uh, a wintry desert right it's but architectural
3: still, it's like an architectural feat no no question
0: right but still to compare it to like merging two entirely separate universes together is i mean that that's saying a lot there I mean, it's one thing to bring two environments together, but to say that you've brought this infinite amount of space together is just—it just shows how he, highly he thinks of himself and his accomplishments. Not that—not that, not that it isn't big, but still, I mean, when you use—that's like me saying my my book will be the greatest book ever, and it'll it'll bring forth the realities of six different philosophies and and enter into your brain and ch- change how you think about humanity
3: and change the <laughs> <your> children <laughs> you, you know if you, like if you put that on the back cover you might sell more copies.
0: <laughs> <laughs> just this big run-on sentence about how how, how it's going to change how you alter it perceive reality forever <laughs> right i think i'm going to do that
2: and even says you know the it, 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 it you know everything you see in in this whole tirade that he goes on on you know on page seven is just you know how, how great I am! How great I am! And then you know, again, we still see like on on the second panel on page seven, we get you know again the pool is a is a triangle shape. So we keep these you know the whole you know triangles and constantly surrounded by these Egyptian symbols and statues and and everything else
3: going on.
0: On the big panel, you, you also have like a Celtic cross on the bench.
3: Oh, that's an Ankh. The Egyptian Oh, it's an Ankh? Oh, an Ankh? oh okay.
0: Yeah. So then, never mind. It's keeping it, it's in keeping with the. Well, well what's the Washington Monument doing over there? That's Isn't another, that from
3: Luxor?
4: Uh, one of those Egyptian. It, yeah, it's one of the, the, the pillars or one of the features of the uh, of that, that pyramid area.
0: And here I am showing my age.
3: I like it how uh, Bubastus is chasing the butterflies who might, it, it kind of looks like they, kind of like his ears almost, might be genetically altered. But so <laughs> docile, and then, well, we'll see Pabastis ramp it up in the next couple pages, too, if not into yeah. 12 as well. So then moving on to 8, we get, you know, finally kind of get some background
2: and early history on Adrian's uh, Adrian's life. You know, this is something we haven't really seen up until this point. And he starts to talk about you know, his childhood, and uh, he said the year he was born is 1939. So, you know, at this point he's, you know, 46, 46 years old since it's 1985. And and, and then, you know, entering school, I was already exceptionally bright. My perfect scores on early test papers arousing such suspicion that I carefully achieved only average grades thereafter. So it's funny, when he was a kid, you know, he knew, obviously, from his own, from the way he talked, he knew how brilliant he was, but yet he tried to be mediocre, you know. Whereas now, you know, it's funny, as an adult, it's all about, you know, how great I am, how great I am, and all my accomplishments and all the things I've been able to do. But back when he was, you know, a child, he hid the fact that he was that smart and that good.
1: I think it's cool that we, we've we seen that so far, you know, the secret origin issues of the comedian and Rorschach and Dr. Manhattan. Now we're finally going to, uh, you know, find the origin of Ozymandias. I think he's the only one whose origin we haven't seen so far.
2: Which that alone should have told us, you know, so much. To this point, you know, ten issues in, and got everybody's backstory but his. That that should have been a, a a clue fairly early on. Not unlike the other clues that we got as well. But but it's interesting on panel two also when he talks about his his early years and his parents and and, and things like that. Do you notice that his his parents' faces are obscured by the by the balloon?
3: It's like uh, Charlie Brown and adults. You never see their faces.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And to me, you know, sometimes I think, you know, panel placement or, or bubble, balloon placement is, is, you know, they always have to be kind of thought out and everything. So to me, you know, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he specifically wanted them placed, you know, over their faces, you know, to, to obscure. Like, it's not important. You know, basically what he's saying is it's not important who my parents were. You know, it's only important, you know, you know, that I tell you the beginnings and then this is what I
3: became, you know, of it. Wait, that might not be his parents, Russ. That might be like a teacher and a principal because, look, they're in school. Yeah, the when, they, when they're talking
4: about the uh, how they arouse suspicion, they're questioning if he was cheating or not. Because or, 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 look at that school.
3: They're school desks.
2: No, no. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I don't know don't why know. I just thought it was his parents like up at the school. You know, like they, you know, either you know taking them to the school or you know or being up at school. But no, that's a good point. It looks like there's
3: a kid sitting at a desk in the far left. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, that's I'd a good either point. way. I mean, he does say that his parents were pretty unremarkable. Which kind of fits with the art idea of, well, we won't even show them. It doesn't even matter.
0: Yeah. Do you guys think there's any uh, significance to the year 1939? Because um, I was thinking, I, right I'm around. Action the-
1: Comics number one? Well, that's June 1938. Oh, okay, because I remember that 38 and 39 were about detective? Uh, when the original uh, Night Owl uh, came out, uh, right. Hollis Mason, in the Watchmen timeline. I think he started right about the same time as Action Comics. So his birth is almost at the same time as the birth of the superhero in this universe.
0: Which would also mean that, and he also is part of that second generation of heroes. So it, like as, as the first heroes were emerging, he was being, he was
3: being born as well. I guess that, that is a significance there. May 2nd, it, Batman, created by Bob Kane, makes his first appearance. Otherwise, 1939, It's like I'm looking at right now, it's like the Spanish Civil War and uh, Hitler's rise to power. I think that's the key because
2: you said my parents reached America the year I was born 1939 and obviously Veit that's you know has a you know Germanic sounding last name so my guess is they were probably escaping they were probably escaping Nazi Germany or, or um, to come to America.
3: That's here that's we go the- August 2nd Albert Einstein writes President Franklin Roosevelt about developing the atomic bomb using uranium this leads to the creation of the Manhattan Project
1: the interesting thing about him his parents leaving Germany in 1939 is that Adrian is pretty much you know the Aryan ideal. You know, he's the peak of physical and uh, mental acuity. Uh, he's, pretty, he's he would have been you know welcome at the side of Hitler as an example of you know Aryan perfection.
0: But then he he may not have survived the bombing of Germany when, when the allies came in because he would have been he would only have been like a 6 or 7 year old child.
2: Could have been his parents were Jewish as well, and they may not have survived at all.
0: That that's also true.
2: Hard to say. Then we find out that you know at seventeen, his by seventeen his parents were both dead, and um, he had a huge inheritance. And then basically he gave it all away. He gave all of his inheritance away. He wanted to be um, you know he wanted to be his own man. You know he he didn't want you know to be given anything. He wanted to earn it and, and to, to do it all himself. So he basically at seventeen he uh, he started over, and isn't that when you guys correct me if I'm wrong? But isn't that pretty much when that, when Alexander had pretty much conquered the world? Wasn't he seventeen pretty much by the time he had conquered the world?
0: It's that, or or he started to do it around that maybe age. That's,
2: maybe, maybe that's what it was. He started. I don't think his his
0: reign lasted that long. I mean, when when it got, I think at thirty three he had only had the extent of power that he did. For only a few years because he, yeah. he spent he spent most of that time just conquering lands left and right,
2: yeah, but this is where we get um yeah I guess he became leader at, at at seventeen, so I guess that's when he would have started his his conquering but on pay on panel six there this is where we get this this i guess it's not that's not i guess I take that back, I guess that's him on his journey looking at the at the at the painting but it's it it's interesting how it does it does bear a resemblance to Adrian. And again, this is where we get this alternating panel style on the page. So we get, you know, a panel in the present, a panel in the past, a panel in the present, a panel in the past. So I guess I was at at first when I looked at this, I took this painting as something in his house, but uh, um, or in 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 Karnak. But I guess it's it's not. This is what he saw on his journey that kind of inspired him. So moving on to page nine, we cut back to New York, and as we look at the, one of the interesting things on panel one is we look at the clock, and the clock shows it's it's. 1120. So, you know, interesting, like we said a couple pages earlier, it was 1125 because everything, he, he said everything to, to pretty much New York time. So again, we go back to, to page one there and it's 1120. So obviously, again, which we've seen in earlier issues where we get this nonlinear storytelling style where, you know, things don't necessarily happen in a, in a completely linear fashion time-wise as, you know, as the, the, either the, you know, between issues or within an issue. And then on panel two, Joey meets up with, um, with her ex, and um, she met, She says something about the Promethean Cab Company being a dump. And then it was funny, she, she says, well, it's where I work, okay, not in some dinky little magazine office with a bunch of guppies. And I thought it was an interesting, one, because I'd never really thought about that term before, but I guess, you know, reading more into it, obviously she's referring to gay yuppies. But if you look back on the last panel, of page eight, there's little fish in in the pond, which almost could be considered guppies. So I thought it was kind of interesting how how that reference, you know, how, how visually we saw that at the bottom of of page eight, and then two panels into page nine, they're, they're make, making a reference to that, uh, obviously not relating to fish, but 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 a guppy reference nonetheless. And then the guy that the the, the next interesting thing is the 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 guy that comes up to uh, to meet the the manager at the Promethean Cab Company. As Joey's walking away, he says, he calls he calls her fella. He says, Hey, hey, fella, excuse me,
3: not realizing that Joey's a woman and not a man. And then she never corrects him. And her girlfriend's name is Josephine. That seems to be another like uh, gender bending type of, uh, of of a name. And also, I mean, is it me or does she look like a knot top?
4: Yeah, um, she was yeah. she was the one that Joey was hanging up those uh, those posters for for the concert. She did. For the Guerf thing, okay. Right, I think yeah. I think we say Joey is Josephine. That's the girlfriend talking in that in that panel there. Yeah, not the girlfriend.
3: No, I, I got my word balloons mixed up. Yep, yeah. it's okay, it happens.
0: And on the in the fifth panel, you see uh, the triangle appears again on the uh, newsstand.
2: Yeah, that's the poster for the uh, for the Gay Women Against Rape um, benefit or whatever that there that she posted up there earlier.
4: Yeah, but that's how everything's coming together. And I'm sorry if um, this is covered, but we find the Gordian knot guy who's been visiting Dan. His brother is the manager at at the the cab company, and it's all under Adrian anyway. I mean, it's just yeah. all little pieces just all falling into place here that we're, like everything's connected.
2: And we see uh, the Hiroshima lovers, the, the painting again on the wall, um, on the sixth panel, and then uh, then you know Joey and her ex start start to getting into a big argument, and then we cut to Bernie who's. Who's reading the 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 very tail end of uh, of the black freighter? So again, it's it's and it's funny. Everything is coming is starting to come in pairs, and we'll we'll see this a little more, even more so later, where we get Joey and her her ex, we get Bernie and Bernard, we get the um you know the the two brothers from the cab company and the lock company, and then later on we'll even see the the you know the two cops that are the partners. It's like all these. You know all those loose ends are kind of you can kind of feel it they're all starting to kind of come together um and kind- you know kind of all converge you know in this one area
1: yeah they're all coming together on this particular uh corner and yeah. there's
2: also that lightning symbol on the
0: eighth panel on that oh that's the those are the uh the things that the be charged. Car- right yeah
2: yeah the recharge stations for the for the cars
0: right and it's interesting that you know you're gonna have that uh the, the the event happened there with that in the back.
2: On page ten, we cut back to Adrian, who continues to tell a story about how he followed basically followed Alexander's path all the way to to Egypt. And it seems like when he when he got to Egypt, that's kind of when he had his final revelation. That and I guess you know go out in the desert and do some hash and and uh, no telling what what's going to come 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 about after you leave that situation.
0: Well, in the fourth panel, we also see the. Um... I mean, if you pay close enough attention to the uh, Vietnamese guys there, you can see that they're sort of nodding off that there's something wrong with them, possibly
2: yeah, yeah you get one of them off and then Adrian's glass is still full you know he's, he' hasn't he hasn't taken a drink from it, and obviously the other guys have have almost finished their glasses, and of course, moving on to to page eleven he he continues and finishes his story and, and talks about how he adopted the name you know took Ramses the second Greek name, um Ozymandias. And then decided to go on his his path to conquest. And he says, "Conquest not of men, but of the evils that beset them." So you know, right away we we start to to see where you know he's really concerned about not so much the evil of men itself, but, but what basically what causes the evil in men. That you know, street level evil is is more, merely a symptom, not not the problem itself
0: and there are there um also some uh parallels sort of sort dark Knight uh that i've i I see there like um i mean in that movie Batman has to take on he has to take on a joker using whatever means necessary, which involves spying on people with that uh cell phone system that uh, Lucius created in that movie and uh just an interesting point that i've i've read on uh, online i i just, i logged in t- i signed up for grant Morrison's website and the the article there about the dark Knight he mentions that he feels that the Dark Knight is to comic book movies what Watchmen is to comics. And so it, it was just swimming in my head there, and I, I thought I'd bring that up. But um, it's interesting. I mean, when you, when you look at developed villains, they never think they're the villain. They always think that they're setting out to do the
1: right thing. And here we have Ozymandias doing the exact thing there. Plus, he um, he sees firsthand that you know fighting crime on the street is more like uh, fighting the symptoms rather than the disease there, and then when he has that encounter with the comedian at the uh, failed crimebusters meeting, it really everything clicks for him. it comes into motion. Hey, wait a minute, you know he 's right. it is all about to burn down, and there's really nothing i'll be I will be the smartest man on the cinder, as the comedian puts it.
2: Yeah. and of course, you see at the bottom of 11 where Adrian walks up and even the control module on the, you know, on the bubble on, on the, 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 the dome there has the A and the V on it. So, I mean, he, the guy can't help, but, you know, put his initials on, on pretty much everything. And, um, we see that at, at, at the end of 11 where he, he's opening the, obviously opening up the dome and letting, letting the outside in. And these poor guys are kind of sprees to death as we see on page, you know, twelve. We see everything starting
4: to die. It's amazing how ever quickly everything just perishes in that environment. If you can see the flowers in the first first
1: uh, first three panels of page yeah. twelve. You so took that—that that he poisoned those three, right? With the wine that he oh, yeah. them. Yeah.
4: Oh yeah. yeah you you could see that in, in eleven, as the as the butterfly lands on the one guy's nose. The other one's uh, his head tilted back. You know, at the very least, they're sleeping, if not already dead.
2: Yeah, and Adrian hadn't touched a drop of his glass.
3: Okay, and he wants to kill these guys for this. Is it like, I'm going into Fight Club territory, like Tyler Durden. Like, he wanted to destroy something beautiful, or he wanted to make sure that all of his accomplices were rubbed out, like the writers and artists that were on the ship with Mike, with uh, Max Shea.
1: If he went that far to, to fill up a, a ship full of people, kill all them, every loose end that he has left in his entire scheme, then it would be almost foolish to leave his assistants alive as well because they would be the only ones... Who would, you know, who would uh, be able to you know, um, expose him? Well, also, he also
0: is destroying the vivarium, though. And he, this is something he had described as a miraculous feat of his. And now he's just simply taking it away. It's, it's more, he's destroying something beautiful. And it, it sort of foreshadows what he's going to do with, uh, with the squid. And it's also just a proof of, I guess, to himself and to us, to his power. I mean he he did all of this and he can undo it in an instant.
3: Do You see the um servant's uniform there's a V in the neckline? Yes, there is. Yeah, look at that. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. The yellow V. But he even mentions
2: if you go back to page 11, when he's talking about, I guess he's talking about the pharaohs, um he said their greatest secrets, however, were entrusted to their servants, buried alive with them in sand-flooded chambers. Right. So again, he's 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 carrying out you know what they did, what the Pharaohs did, you know, except in this instance, um they're not buried alive in sand flooded chambers, they're going to be buried alive in, well not alive they're they're probably dead at this point, but you know covered over in snow.
3: Talk about going down with a ship, jeez,
2: yeah, and then on twelve we get that great. I love you know we we've seen this again, you know, where we get the mostly the same panel repeated um to show passage of time, so in the foreground, we get you know the servant that you know the same. You know, stuck on the same image, just slowly being covered by more and more snow. And in the background, we see Vite going over, pulling off the rose, taking it, smelling it, and then going inside the uh, the, the main part of it of Carnac as the uh, as the portal closes around it.
4: Yeah, I don't know why. That, for some reason, I just love that last touch. He brings that last, that one last rose, like to save one piece of that, and and i will have it at the table with him for dinner
2: later. Yeah, and he literally he stops to smell the rose. Yeah. Then he gets the uh, the Irish from Stargate to close on his uh,
4: on his doorway.
2: <laughs> then on 13, again we get the parallel. You know, again alternating panels. We get a Black Freighter panel. We get a, a you know what's going on in the in the world panel. Um, Flip flop back and forth. And this is kind of the end. This is I think there's one more page of of Black Freighter or Black Freighter reference in the in the book. But this is uh, this is getting towards the end. And it's you know basically the, the the character that's heading off you know realizing what he's done, you know the lynch mob is after him, and uh he's 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 heading towards the uh, the shores and sees the the black freighter off in the distance and uh realizes that the black freighter is waiting for him.
0: what's really interesting is how Bernie is sort of trying to justify uh murder here well why you know the war. By saying morally, we ought to strike first. We ought to protect our women and kids, even if theirs die. That's morally logical. As if morality has a logic to it. As if you know doing the doing the right thing automatically makes sense, and that it's automatically this one thing that's right. And you know, in the Black Freighter, we see the corpse of the first person uh, the man kills, and while he's saying that he has to strike first, and so it 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 does. they the panel and the. Dialogue are going along very well.
2: Yeah, the whole the whole motion. I mean, that was the whole point of the main character coming, you know, coming home was to strike first, to to you know get there before the freighter does, and if he encounters anybody, to 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 take them out before uh, before the the opposite happens. And here we have Bernard that's you know basically saying the same thing. And it's funny that you know again you know all these all these you know juxtapositions and parallels. You know, in panel three. You know, panel two we see a woman walking up to Bernard, and then in panel three she says, "Excuse me," and then he says, "Oh, hi." And then the the text at the bottom of that panel is and saw her," which, you know, again he's referring to the black freighter um, in in the in the in the comic, and then you know Bernard is referring, you know, there's an actual woman that he you know looks up and sees. Then we get this interesting exchange of what ends up being the wife of the psychiatrist. That comes looking for him, and Bernard kind of innocuously says, "Oh, just you know, you know, there's a black guy that sells watches up the street," and the woman, you know, it just kind of takes that as, you know, kind of a, a, a racial insult almost. And you know, I don't think that's how Bernard meant it, or, or maybe he did. And then it's funny, you know, she goes walking off because she sees she sees her husband, and then you know Bernard's response at the, you know kind of that that on on panel eight is that's what's wrong with this world. No incentive to be nice. You try to help. You wind up in trouble, and then the the Black Freighter panel is all my well-meaning plans had come to this. I choked, spat out Brian, and and struck grimly on. So again, you know, he intended. He fully intended to do to do no harm and to help in his quest, and ultimately, you know, that's that's exactly what he ended up doing.
1: Just like a lot of the other characters in this uh, book. I mean,
2: yeah, yeah, exactly. They, you know, what they intended to do and, and what actually happened are completely different. Then we cut back on 14 to Rorschach and, and Night Owl, they finally made it to, to Karnak. Um, and we get an interesting, first. Uh, the, the first three panels are an interesting, we get it from Rorschach's perspective as they come upon the entrance. And again, we see, you know, where Dan, you know, he's about froze to death. He can barely even speak and, you know, Rorschach isn't having a problem at all. And, you know, right away, Rorschach, you know, just to show, you know, being observant and looking at his resources and always being aware, um, notices that the tree, you know, trees buried in the snow doesn't make sense. You know, right away, notices something's weird here, you know, you, you know, how, how are these, you know, why are these trees, you know, buried up, you know, halfway up the, the the stump?
4: How are the trees even there?
2: Yeah. And then Dan is just like, yeah, let's not worry about that. Let's just get inside. Yeah. You know, he's. He's worried about being cold, and, and Rorschach, uh, as always, is worried about, you know, what's really going on.
1: Does that also tie back into uh, Dan's uh, insecurity without Laurie? Instead of, you know, playing the detective and playing the role of uh, Night Owl, he just, oh, I'm I'm cold, I just want to get inside. It could just be as cold. I mean, we, oh, saw, we, that too. we
4: saw how quick the uh, the plant life, you know, you know died in, in that environment, and they've been out there for, you know, figure- Half hour or a little more by now. We don't know how, I don't think we really know when they landed, but
1: yeah, Dan's out of shape too. But he's got a super, super special night owl thermal suit. His yeah. Under Armour. his bad thermal underwear.
2: <laughs>
1: well, he also says, you know, this
0: must be how ordinary people feel. This must be how ordinary people feel around us. And it it's sort of interesting that he, at this moment, he's feeling very vulnerable, about to face his longtime companion who is. An incredible genius, and next to someone who just went through arctic cold with nothing but a trench coat on, it it it, it does seem kind of appropriate that he would feel a bit vulnerable.
2: Yeah, on um, on 15 we get you know where they're kind of retracing you know the the steps through you know everywhere we've been in this issue you know up until this point, and you know Dan is just kind of marveling at what he's seeing you know that you know. The stuff he's got in the Owl's Nest is, you know, nothing compared to, to what he's seeing here. Um, you, know, you know, as, as technological, as, as tech-savvy as Dan is, you know, he, he's even, you know, recognizing the fact that he doesn't recognize most of the stuff in here, that, you know, that, that there's some really, really advanced stuff. And then, you know, Rorschach's retort is just, can I beat when we find him? And then he's, you know, Dan's all worried about, you know, what are they going to say? You know, what are they going to do when they meet him? And then, you know, Rorschach, you know, being Rorschach is, you know, we know we need to subdue him and, you know, and, and ask questions later. So basically, let's go in with, you know, guns blazing and, you know, tie him up or tie him down or whatever. And then, you know, we'll worry about asking him questions later. But, you know, Rorschach, yeah, yeah, you know, Rorschach recognizes the fact that he's, you know, he's dangerous, you know. And I love on the third panel, you know, again, Dan is trying to reason this out. You know, he's, you know, he's equating beats strength and intelligence and, you know, moral choice, you know, and stance and up until this point to be, you know, to equate that to being, you know, good or to being, you know, right. And, you know, where he even says he's a pacifist, a vegetarian. And then Rorschach says Hitler was a vegetarian. If it bothers you,
1: leave right to me. It shows the different and, approaches. Uh, Daniel wants to figure it out and Rorschach wants to beat it out of him. Yeah. You know. And then it's
2: it's, it's funny that Rorschach says, suggests we proceed quietly from here, and then of course up until you know from here until they actually come across them, n- n- no word is spoken. You know there there are no word balloons on the next you know series of panels up until they, they actually come to them. Moving on to sixteen, they you know they're kind of stalking, you know, walking up to them. But I would imagine on these floors, I mean they've got to be like marble floors or whatever. I don't care how quiet you walk, you've got to make some kind of noise.
4: Well, like you get that first-person shot of uh, of Adrian, you can see Rorschach's reflection in the in the bowl. So yeah, he knows, oh, yeah. He knows he's right there, and can very and efficiently the, take him out. The only the only person yeah. who we've seen take Rorschach down, other than the the cops when they just overwhelmed him.
2: Yeah, and then again on his plates and on his bowls and his goblet, you know, again we see the you know the A V pattern, you know, on there as well. And of course the chair, you know, the back of the chair has the you know the A and the V on
1: it. Just corporate branding, yeah just so he doesn't forget that it's his.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you put your initials on your underwear, right? It's the
1: same thing. If you want to loan out those dishes you want to get them back, you got to put yeah. the initials on them.
4: Excuse me, Mr. V, can I borrow your good china? I'm having a party.
1: Can I borrow your evil super villain lair just for for, just for overnight, please? Oh, hey,
4: where are the freaking trucks with the freaking laser beams on their heads? <laughs> 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 That's the one thing missing from this place.
2: Yeah. The the <laughs> <twash>. <laughs> Spaceball's, Spaceball's the goblet. Spaceball's the serving Spaceball's the flamethrower. So, uh...
4: <laughs> what is that gadget that uh, that Dan has? Did he talk about that once before? It's Just a light to blind him, or? Yeah, I couldn't. I, think, I, I couldn't tell what that. I, I mean, I'm just guessing. It's not actually a laser beam. It's probably something. But, okay. It looks laser beamish. I mean, but the uh, bright flash. I thought maybe it was just meant to give him like, a, you know, like a flat, like just flash, fl- like a flash blindness, like a flashbang kind of thing, just to kind of get him disoriented.
0: Yeah. yeah, my my impression was that it was the same cutting laser device he used to cut
3: the to uh, destroy the lock.
0: Could
4: be, yeah. Yeah, good point.
3: You know, when uh, Deathstroke fought the Justice League and Identity Crisis, he just used a laser pointer to take out uh, <laughs> Ray Palmer, the Adam. That's what this reminded me of when I reread this. Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> 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 then of course we see. I love
2: how 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 Vai has uh he's basically taken you know stabbed the fork through. His you know sleeve. is, again, he's not his intention. I mean, he could have just as easily, I would think of you know, slammed that fork through his hand or, or you know, stabbed him with it or whatever. And you know, it's not it, his intention isn't to to put them down. Um, even though, you know, more than likely, especially with Morschak is concerned, he's got to be pretty sure that that's you know what they're there for is to is to take them down by any means. Yeah, he just wants to
4: disable them, you know, for for now at least. And he put that right, fork right. in that table pretty hard. It takes like, almost like a page and a half to get that thing out. <laughs>
2: and then of course he busts Dan's nose with his. Put a, put a fork in it. He's done. Thank you. Yeah, does a Captain America, best Captain America impression on panel four there, and pops Dan in the nose.
4: Yeah, it wasn't that good though. It didn't come back to him. Yeah. Just fell. It just fell. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to know is what was Dan trying to say because he said he says don't make me and then it's. It's Kra.
2: Is was he about to say kill
0: you or probably hurt you he... or yeah
2: something like that yeah yeah I don't think they're I don't think their intention at least at this point would be to kill him just uh, you know but hurt him pretty pretty bad if they had to to take him now
3: yeah Roshak thrives in interrogation but he will kill if he has to yeah
2: and then we get you know again you know he's just he's so arrogant and so unfazed you know his, what are his two his, his two responses. You know, at the bottom of, you know, page sixteen, his response to Rorschach is manners, and then his response to you know to Dan at, at the bottom of seventeen is now. What can I do for you? So he's totally unfazed by the fact that,
3: you know, they've that that they're here. The similarities and dissimilarities between Rorschach and Adrian really start to ramp up over the next couple pages. I think. Number one, look at where they were primarily socialized, their their childhoods. Um, Adrian was gifted, was wealthy, was affluent, um, and Rorschach, Walter Kovacs, was at the absolute opposite end, destitute. And whereas Rorschach sees like mankind as the problem, these overarching, uh, I think that falls in line with Kant, the philosopher, um, Adrian takes quite a different spin on things too. So it's like two different worlds, two different universes. If you look at the vivarium in, in Antarctica, this is Rorschach and, and this is... Um, Adrian. Adrian thrives on, um, you know, with this kind of like lush tropic and Rorschach, who wasn't cold when he was outside with Dan, thrives in nothingness. I mean, he lives in squalor. Compare Rorschach's apartment to Adrian's uh, Karnak. How how far apart can you get with those
1: two? And yet they both became, you know, uh, superheroes or what have you by sheer dint of their own will. I mean, they both made themselves into what they are even though they came from two different ends of the spectrum. Completely.
2: Hey, everybody, Russell here. We decided to go ahead and cut this one off um, at page 18 on issue 11, and we're going to split this issue up into two pieces. So in two weeks, you can hear the rest of issue 11. Uh, Good news is, I think because we'll have the extra time, We're going to cut a little more uh, discussion content to the beginning of Part 2, maybe talk about uh, some more movement on the lawsuit of the movie, maybe just give a little movie talk in general, um, and just whatever else happens to come up between now and then on the book. So thanks for listening, and um, see you in two weeks for Part 2 of Issue 11, Who Reads the Watchmen?